0: Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is a replay episode from 2021 with the iconic author Nick Hornby. He's the author of many best-selling novels including High Fidelity, About a Boy and Juliet Naked. In this episode we talk about creative advice, thoughts on rejection and being published. This is a great episode for all you writers out there. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I've just inhaled everything again and went down a Nick Hornby memory lane, and I love the new cover of the paperback for Just Like You. Does that is it still exciting to see it come to life in that way after all these years?
1: Oh yes. Um, now I think the the uh, the manuscript becoming a book is a big thing, and then uh, the paperback obviously is the time when you hope most people will engage with it. So um, when you get a box of paperbacks delivered to the door, it's always exciting.
0: I can't wait to talk to you more about that book. But I just wanted to start off by thanking you really, because I've been rereading a lot of your interviews. And for someone who has done so much, I feel like you keep it very real with how it was before and all of the learnings and all of the rejections. And, you know, that's stuff that I think writers want to (laughs) hear.
1: Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> there was a lot of it, so I can talk at length if you want.
0: Well, I, I like that you you do talk about how up until your 30s, you didn't really know what you wanted to do. And it's kind of hard to believe because the minute you started writing, it feels like everything just started making sense.
1: Yes. Um, I mean, it wasn't the moment I started writing. It was the moment that I was published where everything started making sense. Um, obviously, there'd been a fair bit of writing before that. But I think it took me a, a very long time to work out what kind of writer I was and what my voice was. And um, I kind of had an instinct about what I wanted to do, but there didn't seem to be too many models for it. Um, so I I kept losing confidence and then regaining it and losing it again and um, wandering off for a couple of years and coming back to it.
0: Because it's, it's the publishing industry, I suppose, isn't it, that writers come up against because... There's molds that people have to fit, and that's what's so inspiring about you because it feels like you never changed your voice. You just had to find the person who liked it and wanted to publish it, and then you were off and away.
1: Yes, and I'd I'd um I'd started um trying to write scripts first of all, uh, and that was completely hopeless. And it took me a while to start writing prose, um, and then it took me a while in prose to find the voice that I wanted to use for writing and um, I was very lucky that somebody really great responded to the idea of fever pitch and paid me to write it
0: and is it different now writing as Nick Hornby who everyone knows I, I don't know if that's an obvious question but when you were writing your first books I guess you weren't writing it for an audience and now that audience is there whether you think about it or not
1: I can never remember that there is an audience when I'm sitting on my own for months, up, month after month. Uh, I think I lose all self-consciousness about that while I'm in the middle of a book. Um, I feel exactly the same as I did, you know, miserable and no one's going to want to read it and <laughs> all that sort of thing. Um, I think one, the one difference is I know I'll finish it. I, I was always terrified with the first couple of books that I'd run out of story in the next paragraph and I'd, and the next two words would be the end and I'd be left with something that was absolutely not a book at all. Um, and I have more confidence in, in pacing myself and knowing uh, where I am in, in a narrative and, and what I need to finish a book. I knew the first book was going to be published because I, I sold it from a, a sample of it. I think... Um, just me in the computer screen means that you you are not self-conscious like my first book was a memoir i was writing about myself and my family um and my relationship with my dad and all kinds of things in fever pitch and um and i felt completely unself-conscious um about writing it and then i saw it in book form and i thought oh my god what have i done this is going into a bookshop all this stuff about me uh, but if I'd had that self-consciousness during the writing of it, I don't think I would ever have finished it.
0: And when I look at your work, I think you've had so many amazing ideas, such great themes and topics and characters. Did you struggle during this year with us all being at home? Did you have less ideas or or more or did it not change that much?
1: Uh, it hasn't changed, really. Um, I think ideas come to you. Um, you know, out for a walk or in the bath or whatever else, but you don't need people or a um, a full working community to be able to come up with them. Um, Probably, if anything, the the quietness has helped.
0: Mm. Because I read somewhere that you got the idea for fever pitch or, or at least you knew maybe it's something to write about after a therapy session and I, th- I think it was on your desert island discs from 2003 or something <laughs> and I, I felt like it was braver to have talked about that even back then
1: absolutely I mean I'm a great proponent of therapy and I think everyone should have it and mm. um, I still do it but that particular time um I I was seeing a therapist. I hadn't been seeing her for very long. And every Monday I saw her, she'd say to me, how was your weekend? And I would always, out of awkwardness, make a joke about the Arsenal result. And I said, well, it was a terrible weekend because we lost 2-0. And then, oh, I had a great weekend. We beat Spurs 3-1. And after about a month, she said, why do you always say that? And I said, well, because I go to football and she said but what's the deal and i'd never talked about it in a way that felt like it meant anything um and i I went right back to the first time i went which was with my dad and a particular set of circumstances involving my parents divorce and and i realized that even even football has some kind of meaning
0: Definitely. I remember someone saying to me a piece of advice that was pay attention to your obsessions with writing because it's all around. You just have to tune into it.
1: Absolutely. And um, you can't quite believe sometimes that you're being paid to write about your obsessions uh, because it comes easier. Um, But uh, I think one knows so much through them that um, they're an endless source.
0: And with Just Like You, I wondered, because the characters, they're really striking in their own way, the age gap, the difference in race. And did they come to you first? Or did the themes come to you? Because there's a lot of juicy themes in this book, you know, about how polarised we all are.
1: Yeah, no, (laughs) the people came first, um, and actually quite some time ago, simply through observing a transaction in a shop, in fact, um, and, and seeing that, Uh, the the assistant and the customer had a little vibe going on and um and when i walked away i thought oh they'll never get together and and here are the reasons why they'll never get together uh which are to do with um education and class and age and and then i started to think really over a period of years are those things so difficult to overcome are they impossible hurdles or can can you jump over them if you try and I had them in the back of my mind for some time. And then the year after Brexit, I thought, oh, this is, this is the context for it.
0: I felt like your book was the antidote of just watching people argue all day long, you know, really diving into uh, someone's world where people were connecting again. It was so nice.
1: Oh, uh, well, thank you. And, um, you know, it was something, the whole thing about Brexit, um, I started to feel more and more strongly about, not in terms of, uh, the political decision, but obviously the gaps between people. And, and I started to get fed up with my own team, to be honest. I, I voted remain. But as we know from looking at Twitter, people are very intemperate and very dismissive of everyone else's opinion, never understanding why someone might have chosen uh, to vote leave. And, and, and also that not necessarily meaning that they're bad people. Um I, I know that there were good reasons why people voted for Brexit.
0: And I guess that's the wonderful thing about fiction, isn't it? Because you can disguise and put onto your views and not your views and friends' views onto these characters. And like you say, there's no good or bad necessarily.
1: Absolutely. And I, I didn't want there to be good or bad. And I wanted the book, as it were, to adopt a, a fairly neutral position when it came to to the vote but um, the thing that concerned me was how we get through it and how we learn to talk to each other about it.
0: And I guess on that topic of, of fiction not really putting barriers on anything it w- it was amazing to see you write a young black man in this book because I think people maybe who are not as experienced as you in writing would would be afraid to do that. Did you do much research talking to people about real life experiences or did you kind of just dive in?
1: Mostly I don't I dove in. Um I was given some confidence by my boys, my sons, and um and the school that they went to, which was a, a, a very mixed school, um, and the very mixed football teams they they play for. And I I I started to spend more time with young black people than I ever did when I was a kid. I mean, I, I, I went to an almost all white School, so I, I I didn't feel completely at sea, but I knew that I had to be incredibly careful. And I think the most important thing is is not so much research because you're writing about people, but afterwards I I gave it to people to make sure that I hadn't done anything terrible.
0: Because I've heard of like sensitivity checks and things like that with with novels and checking things over with people. I mean do, for anyone listening who's who's wanting to maybe challenge themselves a bit more in their writing would you would you suggest showing people but once you've done the writing
1: yes um i think uh the whole thing about research when when you're writing about ordinary people living now um i think that that the research itself is kind of problematic because you're automatically treating people as being more profoundly different than perhaps they actually are and I think as a writer in the end you have to have all you need is empathy um, you you need to look at people and listen to people and and you know whether they're kids or women or anyone who's not like me I hope that I can represent them in books or screen.
0: Totally. I hope people talk about it more in fiction because I definitely feel I wrote my first novel last year and I did stick to sort of what I knew and and I stuck to things that are very close to me. And now I'm thinking, was that too much of a safety net and um, an excuse maybe not to branch out?
1: Sean Updite used to talk about hugging the shore, which I think is a really great expression for what we do when we start out. Um, and I think it's perfectly okay to hug the shore. You you, you will write other books and you'll put, push yourself further out to sea.
0: And also that I guess the feedback from readers I find really interesting. I'm not necessarily someone who goes and looks for horrible reviews, but I definitely got feedback of, oh, it would be really great, you know, for the next one, X, Y and Z, and it was actually really useful.
1: Uh, yeah, I, it's a difficult um, road to walk, I think. Finding useful feedback while at the same time avoiding things that are going to paralyse you altogether.
0: (laughs) Yeah, learning who to listen to. I guess. Uh, Yes,
1: I've just been um, just made another short TV series. I wrote this series called State of the Union um, a couple of years ago, and I've just written another series of that. And there's a um, a a trans character in it, and um, again, it was incredibly scary. (laughs) to approach that, or a non-binary character. And then it was easier because we cast a non-binary actor and then I could talk to the non-binary actor about the things I've got wrong, even before we've made the mistakes.
0: And I feel like the overarching theme of all of this is just connecting with each other more, so not being afraid to ask opinions and get feedback and just talk openly, because otherwise nothing will get made or move on.
1: People love talking, I think, by and large, and they're, they're, they're very happy. Uh, if people are curious about what it is like to be them
0: yes and I I love how much you seem to you do really care about young writers and I know it sounds really obvious but I sometimes I think people are surprised when someone so successful kind of doesn't just disappear into their success and they you know it's amazing what you do for young people who want to be writers or want to tell stories is that always been something you've been interested in
1: Uh, I didn't think about it until I was in a position where I could help. Um, Mm -hmm. But then people get you involved in things and and then maybe you have some ideas of your own. Um, But yeah, I've been involved in in this non-profit called the Ministry of Stories in in East London for the last 10 years or so, which um, helps um, mostly disadvantaged kids with with their writing. Um, And... And you know, if you can help, then why wouldn't you? Um, it's so, um, well, it's incredibly rewarding for a start. And I, I feel like I, I'm doing the right thing with, with my time, whereas most of us, I think, feel that we do the wrong thing with our time quite a lot of the time, like scrolling through Twitter. I'm not scrolling through <laughs> Twitter. I'm actually, you know, involved in this non-profit at the time. I'm actually doing it.
0: Yes. I get, I get from you as well a lot of your work is kind of going against some of this snobbery, I think, that does exist with a lot of literature and how actually it's kind of fun to play and have ideas and not be scared of getting it wrong all the time. That's the vibe I get from your work. I just love your novels. Well, thank
1: you. But um, I think literature's in a kind of a bit of a state that it's dug itself a hole and has stopped speaking to people um it's become more and more of a marginal activity and i think that's a terrible tragedy uh but but quite often writers only have themselves to blame for what it is they're writing about and the language they choose to use to describe it but um there's a lot of literary fiction that i think just uh bewilders people and has stopped speaking directly i mean it was the whole history of the arts was about communicating directly with people and providing entertainment. That's why the novel came into being. It's why theatre came into being. And the idea that it's a private language where you only talk to other writers is, is kind of disastrous, I think.
0: Yeah, it's, it's kind of strange sometimes when you see an an award-winning literary fiction and then you kind of go on amazon and you see that it just didn't it didn't connect really with with people with readers and there is that big gap i think between the two worlds
1: well i, I rather fear that every time the the reading public is told by whoever it is the Booker prize committee that this is the best book of the year and they try it and they think god i'm not going to read the second best book of the year if this is the best one uh, but it, it's not for them um, and it was never for them Tom Wolfe wrote a uh, book about contemporary art and uh, abstract expressionism he said it's a party to which the public is not invited and, um, and I feel that that might be true about some literary fiction
0: is a very much a fear of people writing because they don't want to be seen to be silly or stupid or even if someone's got slight dyslexia they're too scared to give it a go and that makes me so sad because I just think writing is about expression and creativity and being yourself
1: and 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 yes communicating as directly as you can what it is you have to say
0: i suppose one good thing about now is that you can write for an audience maybe without a gatekeeper but i i heard you on a different podcast talk about how high fidelity was a play and how one review stopped it from being a thing and i i it's crazy how much power some critics have i didn't realize
1: well that's that was a musical on Broadway and and um they are killers. I mean that people have all these horrific Broadway stories, but yeah, that one literally died um the night of the New York Times review. It had fantastic reviews in weeklies um that came out actually too late to save the production.
0: Yeah, it's kind of the similar thing then, I guess. Like everyone enjoyed it, but one person the power, yes,
1: exactly, and and um, I think that world is, is particularly difficult. Uh, I, I don't think it happens so much with books or cinema anymore, I think that reviews count for a lot less.
0: Yeah, it's it's so great hearing you talk about all of your all of the stories. I just keep. I I think you spoke about the first time you met Reese Witherspoon on this same podcast, and it's cra- it's amazing what you've been through, and yet you're still you you still sit in the chair and you still do your writing, and it's almost like all the glitz and the glamour can happen in the background, but you've still got to keep on.
1: Well, there is no glitz and glamour if you don't do the work. Uh, I mean, it, you run out very quickly of. of people to talk to because there's nothing to talk about Um, and you know I have had moments of enormous fun and excitement um, through work and you know Oscars and all sorts but it is literally only because I sit at my desk and flog away at the writing because otherwise it nothing gets made and it's or if it does it's no good so you, you really there's no choice but to put the hours in
0: yeah because I, I heard you say as well that you had a break from your column for a few years and then you realized you needed it back because you wanted to have a reason to read and and listen to music and kind of put that somewhere and it It's just such a sign of being a writer, I suppose, isn't it, that you physically kind of have to It's not a choice
1: yeah I, when I, um, whenever I imagine retirement i I imagine me writing, and then <laughs> yeah. I remember that I actually can't retire.
0: And with the with the books being made into so many films, I know that you've spoken about how writing screenplays is literally a long, long slog. And yeah. you probably only feel feel that reward when when it's done. And it's you remember that it was for a reason. But um, do, do you write your novels with the film in mind? Or is it always just the novel first?
1: It's the novel first. I mean, I don't think any of my novels are films, um, but they've all been turned into films. (laughs) I mean, the idea that anyone would ever make a film of high fidelity, which is set inside someone's head, inside a record shop, um, it's not naturally cinematic, but it connected with people who wanted to make films. That's why the film got made. Um, And I think that's happened a few times and uh, I never imagine actors and my my books have quite a lot of dialogue in them because I like writing dialogue but actually even that doesn't necessarily help with something being filmy.
0: And and does having fingers in pies and doing different projects having things on the go help with dealing with any sense of rejection or, or any of those low points along the way because I feel like for a first-time novelist, for example, and, it, and they get their first book optioned, and then it doesn't happen, or it takes years, that could be really hard. But if you've got a lot of things on the go, ma- does it make it easier?
1: Yeah, and I think um, if you're a first-time writer, you cannot just focus on the thing that you've finished um, and uh you know hope it gets published or if it's published hope that you can promote it in some way you need to be on with the next thing you need three four things out in the world i think especially if you're writing screenplays uh because that really is like a four or five year process and uh, you, you can't sit around waiting for all the gatekeepers and, and and the permission givers to make up their minds about whether they're going to fund something you need to get the next screenplay out there and the next one
0: yeah, such a good reminder to keep on doing the work. I mean, I remember someone saying to me that once your novel gets sold, you just have to write the next one. You know, just get on to the next one. And I never understood it until now. You just have to keep going.
1: Well, it's a funny thing because when you're uh, an unpublished writer, everything is focused on mm. being published. And then your book comes out, and on publication day, you think, oh, the world hasn't changed, <laughs> and um, and the in my case the 12000 quid they gave me to write fever pitch in three instalments most of that money is gone now uh because i used it to live off while i was writing the book and um uh now what <laughs> <laughs> you realise there is no now what apart from another one
0: and with dealing with rejection cuz i i um I saw an interview you did, I think, on the Young Writers Award website. You gave some really good advice about dealing with rejection. And I think you spoke about a BBC person who turned you down twice. The
1: most important thing for me is to find my people, you know, who, are, who people I can work with who are on my side rather than focus on the people I know are not on my side.
0: Yeah. And that's what the advice really was so useful because it was pointing out, wasn't it? The fact that you actually only need probably one person to really like what you're doing and believe in you. And actually, of course, it's people are allowed to reject things.
1: <laughs> yes. And uh, I think it's, uh, you know, there are always stories about the people who rejected the Beatles or the people who rejected Harry Potter, but no one accepts everything. Otherwise, all the other companies would be out of business.
0: Yeah. And such a big part of being a writer is rejection. I, I People don't talk about it enough, I don't think, because the rejections always come first because people turn it down first and then it's quite painful to wait for that one yes.
1: Well, it's a a very problematic time in one's life because, of course, I think if you're sensible, you have to also think that the reason I'm being rejected is I'm not a writer and I never will be. I mean, you have to have that in your head at the same time. Um, I think sometimes self-belief can take you down terrible roads from which you cannot escape so you have to walk the line between um believing in yourself but also um i think you do have to listen to people and um uh show show things to friends and 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 listen to advice and some advice might be very hard to hear
0: yeah yeah it's almost two sides of the coin that sort of having thin skin being maybe a sensitive person who can tap into emotions and be a bit of an overthinker during that time when you're about to be rejected yes it's not a good place
1: no it's not but um i think making alliances with with professional people um there's no substitute for that in terms of getting confidence.
0: Definitely. I know that a lot of people always ask you at the end of interviews are you writing another novel? I'm not going to ask you that, but what what is kind of going on this year for you? What are you excited about?
1: I am excited about what I'm doing. I don't know if it will ever happen, but I'm being paid to do it. Uh which is uh, I'm writing a, um what might eventually be a 16 part drama series um, about the Rolling Stones from 1963 until 1974. Oh, wow. Um, so it's it's in the style of The Crown, but it's about the Rolling Stones. Um, and even up to this point, it's been, I've loved doing the research, but also uh, I have to talk to the lead singer of the band quite regularly. Um, and that's been obviously completely fascinating yeah um, wow. and not something I'll forget usually these projects if they don't go anywhere you, you're left with no memories at all apart from um a meeting in a windowless room somewhere in London or California but uh, this one there's been a lot of uh, things that I won't forget anyway
0: yeah that's amazing never wasted I'm sure all of that yes, anyway because exactly. it's you're so interested in it yeah. with, like with the crown being kind of fictionalized it does it take on that sort of Fiction, but real.
1: Well, um, I think both with The Crown and with this, you have to have dramatic scenes involving dialogue, um, which you can only guess at. Um, that's all Peter Morgan could do. Um, you, you think, well, this was happening then and um, to these people, and now I'm going to put them in a room and have them talk about it. So there are parameters to what you're imagining. Uh, because it, it it's rooted in the reality of the situation and you, you know with the stones it's the same thing there are um, there are sort of biographical tent poles. you know you're hitting this point and they're going to make this record and they're going to they're going to be busted for these drugs <laughs> and, and uh, so some of it is fiction in that I'm imagining what it felt like and what they had to talk about in those times but it's not wild fiction it's not science fiction it's 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 speculation
0: amazing that sounds really great i hope that that is made Oh, thank you. <laughs> i hope i listen back to this podcast and and link it up and think that's <laughs> that's that project yeah. nick was talking about yes. <laughs> oh well thank you so much for coming on and um everyone go and buy just like you out in paperback very soon uh it's such a great read
1: oh thank you
0: thank you so much for your time
1: nice to talk to you Anna.